following is a teaching message from Shaw Community Church. For more information on Shaw or our teaching resources, visit www.shaw.org.nz. What I want to do this morning is look at the very first response of the very first people to witness the empty tomb. And I want to look at what their initial reaction was like, how they responded when it really happened on the very first Easter Sunday, and what we can learn from their reaction and their response to that incredible event. So we are going to be in the Gospel of Mark this morning, in uh, the last chapter of Mark's Gospel, Mark chapter 16. If you brought a Bible with you, uh, this is a good time to crack it open, turn over to Mark. It's the third book in the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, sorry, second, what do I know, Matthew, Mark, that's not a good start. I'm, sp- <laughs> I'm supposed to be the pastor of this church and don't know the order of the Gospels. Matthew, Mark, just before Luke. And so Mark's Gospel. It, most most uh, commentators on the Bible, most scholars believe that Mark was written first of the Gospels, of the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke and John, that Mark was written first. And so when you read Mark's Gospel, you're reading the earliest account of the resurrection of Jesus that, uh, that has been recorded, the earliest ever account of the resurrection. So let me read this to you from Mark chapter 16. I'll read the first eight verses. When the Sabbath was over, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome bought spices so they might go to anoint Jesus' body. Very early on the first day of the week, just after sunrise, they were on their way to the tomb And they asked each other, who will roll the stone away from the entrance of the tomb? But when they looked up, they saw that the stone, which was very large, had been rolled away. As they entered the tomb, they saw a young man dressed in white, in a white robe, sitting on the right side. And they were alarmed. Don't be alarmed, he said. You are looking for Jesus, the Nazarene, who was crucified. He is risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. But go, tell his disciples and Peter, he is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him, just as he told you. Trembling and bewildered, the woman went out and fled from the tomb. They said nothing to anyone because they were afraid. Well, that's awkward, isn't it? That's a slightly abrupt ending there in Mark's gospel. And I know some of you have some more words After that, maybe in italics, uh, but that's actually where Mark's gospel ends with this really abrupt ending. They said nothing to anyone because they were afraid. And that's why Mark's gospel doesn't really get read much at Easter time. Most of the time, churches throughout the world over the next day are going to read the resurrection story from Matthew and Luke and John, not from Mark. This story doesn't get read much because this is quite embarrassing. The way that this ends, it's quite awkward. This end is quite jarring. In, in Matthew and Luke and John, you have these accounts of the woman who leave the tomb and they are afraid, but they're also overjoyed at least. And you have the accounts of Mary falling at Jesus' feet and worshiping him and recognizing him. And you have the accounts of the woman going and telling the other disciples and the message getting out there and it is proclaimed and the gospel's going and the movement's underway and there's a bit of momentum and that's kind of how the other gospels bring things to conclusion. But that's not in Mark. Mark just ends it with, they, did, they said nothing to anyone because they were afraid. And that's it. 
You, you don't have the joy, you don't have the worship, you don't have the praise, you don't have the proclamation. You just have trembling, you have bewilderment, you have fear, you have confusion, you have this disorientation. And that's how Mark chose to end his gospel. In fact, it's even worse than that because the women here are directly disobeying what the angel told them to do. So the angel says, if you look up in verse 7, the angel says, Go and tell his disciples and Peter that he's going ahead of you into Galilee. And the women run away and they don't say anything to anyone because they're afraid. It's almost comical. In Mark, you've got several times where Jesus tells people not to say anything about him. And they do anyway. And then you get to the end of the gospel, and finally they've got permission to go and tell. Now you can go and tell. And they say nothing. And there's this strange irony at the end of Mark's gospel. It's like, what is going on here? That they've directly violated the command the angel gave them, and then it just ends. And this has been so awkward for people that people have felt the need to come up with alternative endings to Mark's gospel. And that's what some of your Bibles have in them. So those of you, and my Bible's got in italics, about another 12 verses after verse 8. Some, some of your Bibles might have the short ending to Mark's gospel, and then the long, it's like, you know, Hollywood movies with alternative endings. Do you want the short ending of Mark's gospel? Would you like the long ending? You have different options. Some people just believe Mark couldn't possibly have meant to end his gospel there, so the, the, the ending must just be lost, and we don't know where it is, but it's just lost. But people, all of those endings, they're not part of the original gospel that Mark wrote. They were all added in by people. And, and understandably, later on, people just could not believe that Mark really ended his gospel with verse 8. With, they said nothing to anyone because they were afraid. And so you get all these alternative endings that have been suggested. And the alternative endings may be very encouraging and they might be very inspiring, but they're not the gospel. They're not part of the original gospel of Mark. Mark ended in verse Eight, and we're going to deal with it. It's an awkward Easter story, but this is the one we're going to look at this morning. This is this, we're not going to rush to Matthew and Luke and John, who give us the triumphant ending. We're just going to sit with this, this gospel story, this Easter story. And I think in the first instance, at least, this tells us there's no way this was made up. Because who would make this up? Who would make up this kind of story? I mean, if you were a disciple of Jesus... And you wanted to spin a story about how he was the son of God, savior of the world, risen from the dead, and you wanted to get that going, start a bit of a, bit of a movement, would you, and you wrote a book about it, would you ever in a million years end it this way? Would you ever end it with, they said nothing to anyone because they were afraid? How would that help you? How is that going to get the followers? How is that going to get a bit of momentum? It doesn't help you. The fact that this is pretty rough and jarring actually lends weight to the fact this is probably just what Mark wrote. This is probably real because this, this, you can't make this stuff up. This is true. Sometimes, you know, it's the rough edges of the truth that actually help you see that it's the truth. Sometimes a lie can be too polished. A lie can be too slick. A lie can sound too good. A lie can be too self-serving. This is none of those things. This is rough. This is real. This is jarring. This is raw. And it's truth. It, this lends weight to the credibility of Mark's gospel. So rather than patronizing Mark by coming up with all these alternative endings, I just want to ask a different kind of question this morning. What if Mark intentionally ended his gospel there to tell us something? 
What if he intentionally ended the resurrection story there to teach us something and show us something? Uh, what can we learn from this? What does this particular resurrection story tell us about Easter? What does it tell us about the gospel? What does it tell us about our faith? What does this tell us about Jesus? The first thing I think it tells us is something about what real faith looks like. What real faith looks like. Not a manufactured kind of faith. Mark ends his gospel in the same way that you have the ending of a movie that leaves the story open for the next movie. With this kind of unresolved tension. We don't tend to like unresolved tension. That's what keeps us coming back. But this is like this is like the ending to the recent Star Wars movie, where you have that scene right at the end with what's her name holding out the lightsaber to Luke Skywalker, you know, and there's that there's that long, long moment of tension there, where these two people are looking into each other's eyes, and there's this tension, there's this question: Is Luke going to take the lightsaber? Is he going to join the resistance? Is he going to come back and fight against the empire? And there's this look going back and forth, back and forth, far longer than people should look into each other's eyes like that. But that's that, and that's the ending. And then the movie ends, and that's it. And there's this unresolved tension there. And so it leaves it wide open for the next movie. And of course, he's going to take the lightsaber, and of course, he's going to come back, and of course, it's going to carry on, and that's the way it goes. But the point is you create this tension there, create this tension that leaves it open. And that's what Mark has done. There's this tension in the story and the way that he's ended the story. But Mark didn't write part two. Mark didn't come back and write another gospel. He didn't come back later on and tidy it up. He just, Mark seemed to be comfortable leaving the story there. He seems to be comfortable presenting us with the reality of Jesus' resurrection and then just leaving it. He's okay with a certain amount of unresolved tension. And it, it kind of leads the question, you know, how comfortable are we with that kind of tension in our faith? When we don't tend to be very comfortable with it. What we want is resolution. What we want is a nice, tidy, packaged faith. We want all the questions answered. We want a Bible that just kind of gives us the answer to every question you've ever asked about anything in life. Just nice, tidy, slick faith, everything in its place. We just want all the boxes ticked. All the answers, everything just sorted out, yes or no, right or wrong, black or white, in or out, us or them. This kind of faith, just everything sorted out, nothing out of place. We don't like messy in our faith. We just want a nice, clean, tidy faith. But Mark doesn't give us that. Life doesn't give us that. Easter doesn't give us that. Easter is a messy story. The Easter story creates a certain amount of unresolved tension that we have to live with in the prison. I mean, in a certain sense... The Easter story resolves a whole lot of tension that has gone before it. So Jesus' life and death and resurrection, it resolves all of this tension through the Old Testament of who the Messiah was going to be. The one the prophets pointed to, the one the scriptures pointed to, the one Israel hoped for, all of that tension building and building and building, all that is resolved with Jesus. He's the one. Jesus is the Messiah. He is the Son of God. He is the Savior of the world. He has died. He has been resurrected. All of that tension is released. But at the same time as that tension is resolved, there's a new tension that's created. And this is what the Easter story does. It doesn't just wrap up all the loose threads. It creates a new tension that we live with in the present. The tension is Jesus has been raised from the dead, yes, and yet there's still trembling and there's still fear and there's still bewilderment. And all of those things are existing now in a post-resurrection world. 
There is still confusion. There is still failure. There is still bewilderment, even after Jesus has been raised from the dead. There is a tension in this story. There's a tension that's been opened up. And this tension is because God has raised Jesus from the dead, and yet we still live in this world of brokenness. We still live in this world of sin. This is so different to what people were expecting to happen when God brought about the resurrection. In the Jewish mindset, the way this was going to happen is that God would raise everyone up at the same time. There would be this great resurrection, and everyone, the dead, the living, we would all receive new bodies, resurrected bodies, all at the same time. But what God has done, what God did at Easter, the surprising twist in the Easter story is that God raised one person from the dead ahead of the rest. God raised one man from the dead. But we're all still waiting for our resurrection body. We're all still waiting for that day when he raises us up. But he's raised Jesus as the first fruits. What was that quote from the message that Nate read out? Jesus was the first to first in a long legacy of those who would leave the cemetery. That's a great line. Jesus has been raised from the dead. He's the first, and there'll be many others. But at the moment, there's a tension. The fact that Jesus has been raised ahead of the rest of us means that God has opened up this kind of in-between time, this kind of tension time where Jesus has died, Jesus has been raised, and yet we live in a world where there is still fear. We live in a world where there are still all of these things that the woman experienced, they're all still very real for us. And that creates tension. And we saw it. We saw it this last week in Brussels. We saw this kind of tension at work. And, and I don't know whether it was even on the minds of those who perpetuated those acts in Belgium that this would be done in the week leading up to Easter. I don't know whether they specifically chose that in, in the week that Christians call Holy Week, that a couple of days before Good Friday, you have these acts of terrorism where lives are taken, where families are devastated, where people are traumatized, hundreds of people affected and traumatized, and fear is bred into a country. And this happens a couple of days before we're celebrating the death and the resurrection of Jesus. And there's the contrast. There's the contrast of the present life, that we're here this morning and we're saying Jesus has been raised from the dead. He's risen. He's Lord. He's already reigning. He's got all authority in heaven and on earth. And yet, what about Belgium? How do you reconcile this? How do you hold this together? There's a tension that's opened up in our faith. Jesus is already reigning, and yet we live in a world of violence, injustice, oppression, fear. These women experienced a certain kind of fear. People in Brussels experienced a different kind of fear this past week. There's a tension in our lives. There's a tension in our faith. And Easter, I think, calls us to have the kind of faith that can deal with that tension. Not the kind of faith that just offers cheesy Christian platitudes and slogans and easy answers and just throws Bible verses at it, but a faith that's big enough to hold together the tension, the unresolved tension of the present life. It's the very presence of this kind of tension that calls for faith. One author describes Christian faith like the springs on a trampoline. I can relate to the analogy because we've got a trampoline at home. 
Not one of the springless ones, you know, the real trampoline with springs, the old school trampolines. And it's great, you know, we're bouncing away with our boys, two years old, four years old, six years old. And when they're that young and you bounce really close to them, you can send them hurtling up into the sky like missiles, I've figured out. It's great. You do a big bounce right next to them. You send them into the stratosphere. It's fun. So no injuries so far. But here we are bouncing on our trampoline, and someone's described the Christian faith like the springs on a trampoline. What would happen if, if there was no tension in those springs? What would happen if you encountered a trampoline with no tension in the springs? The whole trampoline's just going to sag to the ground. It's kind of like our faith. <clears throat> if there was no tension, if all your questions were answered, if all your doubts were completely removed, if uh, God intervened and sorted out every problem in your life, sorted out every problem in our world. If there was no tension, our faith would sag to the ground. And there would be no need for this thing called faith, would there? Because everything would be understood. Everything would be perfectly comprehensible. Everything would be totally sorted out. And we might be grateful for that, but there'd be no need for faith. Because faith, the Bible says, is the evidence of things we don't see. It's the substance of things that we believe in, but we can't yet see. Faith is believing that God is in control even when we can't see it, even when we don't see evidence of that in our lives or in our world. Faith is believing that God is good even when we see what's happened in Brussels this week. Faith is believing that God is going to work things out in the end, even when the present is confusing and it is bewildering and we are alarmed and we are confused and we are afraid. Faith is holding on to the cross, holding on to God, even when the present does ma doesn't make sense, even when you're in a situation that you cannot resolve. You cannot figure it out. You cannot find your way through. That's what breeds faith. That's what should give rise to faith. Without that, there's no need for faith. Faith needs a certain amount of tension in order to be faith. Just like a trampoline spring needs a certain amount of tension in order to get a decent bounce. If your faith is going to bounce, so to speak, it needs a certain amount of tension. I'm not saying we need terrorism in the world. I'm saying it's the presence of tension that creates a need to have faith, to hold on to something beyond what we see, beyond the immediate beyond the difficulties, to hold on to something, something that is real, something that is going somewhere. Faith points us towards the future. Faith points us towards the day and holds on to the day when God will bring about resolution. There will be a day when Jesus returns, when all the resolution is there, and there's no more unanswered questions, and there's no more uncertainty, and all doubt is removed, and all questions are answered, and there's nothing but resolution. But that's not the present. In the present, we're living in this in-between time between the first resurrection, the resurrection of Jesus, and the final resurrection of our bodies. And in that space, there is a tension, and we need to have a faith that, that is big enough to deal with that. We need to be like Mark and be okay with some unresolved tension in our life, to be okay with a bit of uncertainty, to be okay with some mystery, in our faith. Sometimes we just want all that stuff to disappear. We want everything to be so clean cut. We need to be okay and embrace the tension of the present life because that is what gives rise to real faith. Not just a manufactured faith, but a real gritty faith that can hold its arms around the tension of life. So I think Mark's gospel teaches us what real faith is. Faith that can embrace tension. 
the unresolved tension of the present. And secondly, I think this particular Easter story tells us something about what grace is. Tells us something about what real grace looks like. Look, look again at the response of these women. When they find out about the resurrection, three things they do. They fear, they fail, and they flee. Three Fs. They fear, they fail to do what the angels told them to do, and they flee from the tomb, and not in a good way. They just flee in silence. And I think the reason that I've actually come to quite like this particular version of the gospel story is because I can see myself in the responses of these women. I can see myself in the reaction of these women. Even though we might prefer a different kind of resurrection story and we might want to go to Matthew, Luke, and John, I think we all live in verse 8. This, isn't this, this is what I spend most of my life doing, failing, fearing, and fleeing. Exactly what these women do, worrying about stuff that I don't need to worry about, failing to live up to God's expectations for my life, and fleeing God and just doing stuff that I want to do anyway. That's, this is where I live. I can relate to this. This might be awkward and embarrassing, but you can't tell me it's not real, isn't it? This is a real story. This is real life. It's earthy. It's gritty. That's what makes it good. We can see ourselves in the responses of these women. We can identify with them. And I think that's part of Mark's point here, is that even though he ends his gospel in this kind of negative note, and you have the initial reactions of these women kind of negative and slightly awkward. The point is that God's grace does not depend on that. The point is that that's not really the end of the story. If Mark was telling a story about these disciples, this would be a bad ending. But Mark's not interested in telling a story about these disciples. He's interested in telling a story about Jesus. Mark's story is about Jesus. If you read it from the perspective of these women, then the ending's a bit of a downer. If you read it from the perspective of Jesus, the ending is just as solid. Where's Jesus? He's risen. He's gone ahead of them into Galilee. He's died for them. He's been raised from the dead. And none of that hangs on their actions. None of that hangs on how good or bad they are. Jesus is still risen. God's plan is moving forth. The kingdom is broken into the world. Grace is being poured out. People are being drawn in. And the actions of these women don't determine the outcome of the story. Despite this weakness, despite this human weakness, God's grace is just carrying on. God's redemptive story is still in motion. And I think that should draw us back to the central truth of the gospel, the central truth of Easter, that God's grace does not depend on us. Even if we see ourselves in verse 8, even if our reactions are the same as the reactions of those women and nothing like the people on the video, that's okay because God's grace doesn't depend on us. God's grace doesn't depend on us. And we still default to thinking that it does. No matter, Even though we know better, most of us, and we could all nod our heads at the truth that I know I'm saved by grace. It's not because of anything I've done. But I think most Christians still tend to live out of a performance mentality. Live out of this idea. It's still about how good I am. And we still default to basing our relationship with God on our spiritual performance, don't we? I know I do. Most of the time, if, I, if I've had a good week, if I'm feeling close to God, I feel more qualified to get up here and preach. 
If, I'm, if I've had a bad week and I'm feeling distant from God, I feel less qualified to get up here and preach as if my good week or bad week has anything to do with how qualified or unqualified I am to get up here and preach. Even the very, the very fact that I think I would ever be qualified to open God's word to another person shows me that I haven't yet come to grips with my own depravity and I haven't yet come to grips with the sufficiency of God's grace. I'm still working that out in my life. I haven't yet fully grasped these two great truths of our faith that John Wesley articulated. I am a great sinner and Christ is a great saviour. That's really all you need to know. But again, we can nod our heads and yet this just hasn't gotten in yet, has it? We still live out of this performance mentality, thinking that somehow God's treatment of us, his love for us, his general disposition towards us depends on how well we're doing in our spiritual life. I was talking to a woman after church last week and she gave me permission to share this story. She came up to me and she and her daughter are interested in being baptized. Wonderful. We had a great conversation about baptism and she said in the context of that conversation that she's just always kind of felt like she's not quite ready to get baptized. Always just kind of felt like she's just not quite there in terms of her spiritual growth and her spiritual maturity. And she said to me, every week I wonder, is this going to be the week that I'm ready? Is this going to be the week? And, and by that she meant, you know, am I going to be spiritually mature enough? Will I have reached a point where I've got my stuff together enough that I'll be ready to be baptized? And we talked about the fact, and she knows this, that that turns baptism on its head. That way of thinking turns the gospel on its head. It turns Easter on its head. It turns grace on its head. When we start thinking, it's about me getting ready. The whole point of baptism is me acknowledging I'll never be ready. Despite my very best efforts, I will never, ever be ready. And that's the point. I can't do it. I can't make it. I'm not good enough. I desperately need the grace of God. I desperately need a savior, someone who has borne my sin for me. And I need to cast myself on his mercy. And baptism gives expression to that. When we start making this about reaching a point of spiritual enlightenment, we've, we've turned the whole gospel around. And yet we do this all the time in our lives. We keep thinking it's about our spiritual performance. And because of that, I think so many Christians are still stuck in condemnation. Stuck in self-condemnation, where we are so loaded up with guilt about ourselves, and you might be in this space just, just feeling so guilty about how bad you are, feeling so ashamed, feeling so wretched about yourself, just loathing yourself because you don't believe you are good enough for God and He could ever possibly love you. You don't believe there's anything that you could do that would ever please God. There's just nothing that would ever turn His face towards you. And so you just live in that place of condemnation. It's this great cloud over your head. And Easter should be a time when we come back to the death of Jesus and the resurrection of Jesus and we hear him speaking over our life, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That The condemnation has been lifted by the cross and by the empty tomb. Grace does not depend on you. It depends on Jesus. God's love for you, God's favor towards you, God's treatment of you does not depend on you. It depends on what Jesus has done for you. And I'm, I know I'm saying something that 
many of you have heard so many times before, but as I'm saying it, I'm just praying that somehow today it's going to get in. Somehow today it's going to penetrate in a way. I'm totally reliant on the Spirit of God here to get this truth into our hearts because we do hear it so often. We become desensitized to it. God's grace does not depend on you. It's not about you. It's about Jesus. It's about what he has done, bearing your sin and rising again for you so that now when God looks at you, he sees Jesus. He sees his son, Jesus, and he speaks to you the words that he spoke to Jesus. You are my precious son. You are my precious daughter. With you, I am well pleased. Not because there's anything in us, in and of ourselves, that's pleasing to God, but because through Jesus, we've been made acceptable to the Father. We've been made acceptable. We need to come back and teach our hearts this, that God's grace is not about us. It's about Jesus. We need to preach the gospel to ourselves, keep telling ourselves that truth every day until we drive it into our hearts. It doesn't depend on how good or bad. It's not my spiritual performance that matters. You've just got to get off that performance treadmill, some of you. You're just going round and round and round. You've got to get off that performance treadmill and just realize God's grace is sufficient. It's done. It's about Jesus. It's not about you. And finally then, this passage I think tells us something about what real life looks like. If you ask the question at the end of Mark's gospel, where is Jesus? Well, he's raised from the dead. He's gone ahead of these women. And he's in Galilee. As Mark's gospel closes, Jesus is already in Galilee. He's already several hours further north than these disciples. And he's waiting for them. He's waiting for them there. Why Galilee? Because it was their home. That's where they were from. Jerusalem wasn't the home for these disciples. It wasn't Jesus' home. That's where he was crucified, but it wasn't his home. It was from Nazareth in the north. And that's where he went, waiting for them, waiting to meet them there. And so the the question that hangs over Mark's gospel as it ends is, are these women going to go and meet Jesus in Galilee? Are they going to go and tell the other disciples? And are they going to be reunited with Jesus? Now, we know the answer because we've got Matthew and Luke and John. We know that, yes, they tell the other disciples eventually, and yes, they all go and they meet him in in Galilee. But if Mark's gospel was the only book that we had, that would be a huge question mark hanging over the whole story. Are they going to go and meet Jesus? What's going to happen? Is the whole thing just going to stop right here, or will they go? And I think the reason that Mark ends this way is because he wants to draw his readers into this story, and he wants to force them to make that decision for themselves. Mark does that. If you read the Gospel of Mark, he, he, he does this all the time. Mark is the shortest gospel of all the Gospels. He doesn't give a lot of commentary. He doesn't give a lot of interpretation. He's really good at just telling you what Jesus did and then letting you make the, make the decision as to what you do with that. He just puts it there. This is what Jesus said. This is what Jesus did. And he just t- it's just the action of Jesus' life. He doesn't give a lot around the edges of that because he wants you to make the decision of what you make of it and who you think Jesus is and how you're going to respond to them. And what he's doing at the end here is just the same strategy he's employed right through his gospel is he's presenting the fact of the, re- the resurrection and he's saying, now you decide. What are you going to do with that? And we see the initial response of these women, but Mark is saying, you've got to decide for yourself. He's drawing us into the story and he's saying, we're all standing at the face of the tomb. 
We're all standing where those women stood. And sooner or later, we've all got to decide, what are we going to do? How are we going to respond to this news? How are we going to respond to the resurrection of Jesus? Are we going to run the other way or are we going to run towards Jesus? Jesus is waiting for us just like he was waiting for those disciples. Are we going to run towards him or are we going to run away from him in fear and failure? It's a question that every one of us need to answer. What are you going to do with Jesus? How are you going to respond to him? You're at the face of the tomb. And I, I just want to encourage those of you, I want to speak to those of you for a minute who are just right now in that space where you're kind of holding Jesus at a distance. And I know it's easy to do I know it's easy to do that for a long, long period of time because that's a comfortable place to be where you've just got Jesus at arm's length right now. And maybe you're, you're exploring and you're coming along to church maybe sometimes and you're just checking this faith out and you're asking a lot of questions and that's good and you're exploring and you're seeking and that is good. But there comes a point where you've got to decide. There comes a point where you've got to commit. You can just circle around, circle around, circle around, but there comes a point where you've got to decide what, how are you going to respond to the reality of Jesus' life and death and resurrection. And Jesus' invitation to you today is the same as it has been for 2,000 years. Come to me, he said. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Jesus offers us life, and he invites us to come and bring our lives and entrust them to him. That's what faith is. He invites us to entrust our lives to him, to lay them down, place our lives in his hands. We don't wait until we've got all of our stuff together to do that, because that's ne that day is never going to come, because we're broken people. We don't wait to have all of our questions answered before we do that, because that day will never come either. That's what faith is, is believing in the presence of unanswered questions and doubts and uncertainty. That's, that you require faith, whatever you believe about the ultimate questions of life. But Jesus invites us to come to him. And he invites us to go through the same kind of process he went through over Easter, a dying and a rising. That's simply what it means to be a Christian. It's to go through a death and a resurrection. What better day? to make that decision than Easter Sunday. The dying is just simply saying, my old life is gone. That old person, the old identity I had that was just self-governed, self-led, self-determined, that life is, is over now. God, I, I'm asking God that you would take that away. I, I want that to be nailed to the cross with you, Jesus. And that, and that self, that me, is gone. And then there's a resurrection that happens as we ask God to give us new life. It's not a physical resurrection like Jesus had just yet. One day we'll get those new bodies. But in the present life, God gives us that resurrection on the inside. A new heart, new life, new future, brand new identity. He raises us up to new life. And it's such an extraordinary new life that the Bible describes it as a new birth. As being born again or born from above. It's the words that John uses. We are born from above, born from heaven. And we receive an entirely new identity. This is not just about tacking Jesus on to the end of your life. It's not just like Jesus is an app on your phone. One of many others. This is about deciding Jesus is going to be my operating system. Jesus is going to be the defining, central reality in my life. And I just want to invite you without any, any manipulation or any coercion because I believe that the good news of Jesus has power 
and that through it God does change and challenge our hearts. So I just set before you this morning that invitation and that hope that you can be transformed by Jesus and that he stands before you this morning waiting and inviting you to come to him and receive that new life. And if you've been holding him at arm's length for a long, long time, I just want to invite you to make today the day, this Easter Sunday, this Resurrection Sunday, make this the day when you come home and you come back to the one who created you, who loves you, and who offers you new life to bring all of yourself to him and entrust your life to him. Receive his forgiveness. Receive his mercy. And receive a reconciled relationship with God. That's what Jesus offers us. That invitation is available. I'd love to talk with you, to pray with you, if you want to take that step into a relationship with God today. And so this particular Easter story, I think, in Mark's Gospel, teaches us to be okay with a bit of tension in our lives and in the world because tension is what can produce real faith in our lives. I think this story teaches us to be okay with a bit of messiness in our life because that's where faith is needed. It teaches us not to judge our relationship with God on the basis of how good we are or bad we are, but purely on the basis of God's grace. There's nothing you can do today that'll make God love you any more than he already does. Nothing that you can do that'll make him love you any less than he already does. Your relationship with him, if you belong to him, is completely secure through Jesus. And this story, I think, holds out the invitation of life. That Jesus is waiting, that we stand at the empty tomb, and each of us need to make that decision for ourselves as to how we are going to respond to the personal presence of Jesus and what he has done for us and his invitation to us of new life. Let's pray together. I want to just pray for any of you this morning here who are just in that space of standing at a distance from God. And maybe you consider yourself to be a Christian. Maybe you consider yourself to be a believer. Maybe you're not. Maybe you don't know. It doesn't matter. If you're in that place of just, you know, you're just holding Jesus at arm's length. I want to pray that God would just open your heart to his love this morning. And whatever barrier there is there would be removed, not by anything that I've said, not by any slick or persuasive words, but, but by the power of God. God, I pray right now, you, you are here, God, in power, and you look down in this room and you see our hearts. And you know the ones here, God, that are still just, their hearts just closed to you. And maybe there's been some baggage and they've been hurt in the past by people who have claimed to follow you. Maybe they've been hurt in the past by churches, teachers, whoever. Maybe there's arguments. Maybe it's just that uncertainty, that not knowing, that the risk. Maybe, Jesus, it's, it's just that it's easier to never quite get around to it. And so today, God, we pray that you would shine the light of your good news into any hearts here that are still in darkness, any hearts that have just become dark over time. God, anyone here who doesn't yet know that new life, that's found in you, Jesus. Would you just shine right now the, the light 
the light of the gospel, the light of Jesus, shine it into the hearts of those who are here and open their eyes so that they could see Jesus and that they would see you, God, not as a, not as a storybook character, but as the God who is real, the God who created us, loves us, has died for us, has been raised again for us. I pray you'd open the hearts of people this morning. Lord, for those of us who have just drifted away from you, we pray today would be a day of homecoming. We just come and renew our commitment to you. Just cast ourselves again on your mercy and just receive your fresh grace. Jesus, for those who have never chosen, never chosen to stand with you, I pray you draw them to yourself this morning. May they see you holding your arms wide, arms of love, arms of grace. And may they run into those arms and find that new life in you. Thank you that you offer us grace so freely and yet it costs you so much. We thank you, Jesus. Thank you for your death. Thank you for your resurrection. It's in your name we pray. Amen. This has been a teaching message from Shaw Community Church. For more of our teaching resources or to donate to our teaching resource ministry, or for more information on Shaw Community Church, visit www.shaw.org.nz. Alternatively, you can email office at shaw.org.nz or phone 09 415 0455. Thank you for listening.